Good morning. This is Pastor Todd. I want to thank you for tuning in to the Gathering Place podcast. This week, I am sharing a message for the church. I trust the Lord uses it to encourage and build you up. And here is this week's message. Thank you, Lord, that, that you've been very clear in your word, like what your expectations are for the church, what your heart is for your people. And so, Lord, we thank you for that, that, that we don't have to try to discern some obscure mystery just to garner a little bit of favor with you, that, you, that your heart, your life is an open book that we call the Scriptures, and that we know what we can do to be pleasing to you. Thank you that you've revealed that to us. Thank you, Lord, that you have a heart to save your people, and that you're not about tricks or pulling punches, you're not about... Uh, deceiving us into failure, but you are a true and honest and ever-loving Father. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. Mike here. All right, we got some power. All right, so uh, we're uh, continuing with our series on 1 Timothy. And um, this week I'm doing... uh, Chapters 3 and chapters 4, we're doing it combined. So it's not going to be an entire verse-by-verse rundown. I don't have two hours for that. Um, But we're going to hit out some major points on uh, 1 Timothy 3 and 4. So before we get started with uh, the scriptures, it's pretty easy to see if we look around that all too often um, so-called Christians, I'll use the quotes because I kind of wonder if they really are, uh, they tend to have a big following on social media, tend to resound the sentiments of the world. The, there, there's like this trend. If, you, if you're a Christian, you have big following, whether you're an artist, whether you're just a blogger, whatever it is, that you, there's a tendency to go the way of the world. You can even see that in the 80s uh, rock band. What was it, Striper? It was a Christian band, and then they, they, they just kind of fell because they got intermingled with the ways of the world. Um, what happens is that, that they, and, and, and we're not immune to this either, they fall into the spirit of the age, and they've adopted this need to be validated by the world, to be viewed as relevant, right? Uh, and and that, that hunger, that, that drive right there is enough to cause them to abandon what it really is to be Christian. Uh, we can use the term progressive Christianity. I don't know if you've heard of that term or not. It's a very popular term. It's been so in the last 20 years or so. But progressive Christianity uh, become, develops a willingness to abandon the decrees, the doctrines, the teachings of Scripture for the, the sake of being relevant to the world. Now, that's basically what progressive Christianity is. And so... If you really want to be technical, if you're abandoning the doctrines and the teachings of scriptures, you're not really Christian. So progressive Christianity is more like a regressive paganism than anything else. But a solid definition of what it means to be and to live the Christian truths are found in scripture. And Paul is very clear uh, with 1 Timothy uh, what that really looks like. You know, last week we really talked about um, like the expectation for men, the expectation for women, uh, about godly character in the face of, in that point, 
um, pagan Ephesus, right? Because Timothy was founded, was stationed in Ephesus at the time, beholden to a whole goddess worship culture, a whole culture that was that was pretty much anti-masculine, right? All about worshiping the feminine, uh, and like even so much so that the high priest of the Ephesian temple to Artemis was a eunuch. So there's this whole movement that we looked at last week. You can go back and listen to it um, on our podcast. And Paul continues teaching Timothy in chapter 3 about what it is to be Christian in your character, in your beliefs, in your thought patterns. So we're going to look at that. So what, we, what we're going to do is chapter 3 and 4, uh, here's one of those big words, they juxtapose. So they set opposites next to each other. What it is to be a follower of Christ versus what the worldly ways are or what uh, fake Christians are adopting, allowing the world to come in. So that's what we're going to look at today. Um, just, just as a, a little side note, before we get into the scriptures, um, I looked up, uh, there, there's some really good apologists, uh, apolog- apologetic Christians. It, means they're not, it doesn't mean they're apologizing for anything. Apology means a defense. So apologetics in Christianity is a defense of the faith. Um, and they pretty much distilled down, if you think of progressive Christianity, here are the five things that you can look for to say, oh, that's falling into progressivism. First is um, a, an abandonment of the teachings of the Bible. So there's this lowered view of Scripture, that it's not really like this highly regarded, sanctified thing. It's It kind of lowers it um, so that other things can compete for that authority level. Number two is that they there's a pursuit of how I feel versus over the facts of things. There's, there's a move away from objective reality, objective facts, based more on like, oh, I, I feel this. I, I, this is how it impacted me, instead of like, what does God's truth actually say? Number three, they take all of the established doctrines and they reopen them. They open them up for reinterpretation. They like to reinterpret um, doctrines. They like to reinterpret definitions. Um, they redefine what the scriptures say. And then number five is they move away from the concept of personal sin, where you're responsible for your own sin. They move away from that and the sin and the need for redemption, and they put it into this other category that we know now as social justice. So it's a moving away from you're responsible for your own wrongdoings because there's this sinful institution that is keeping you oppressed and that needs to be overthrown. Um, So a move away from that is a move away from the teachings of Scripture. (sighs) Interesting to note, progressive Christianity, this is church history stuff, all it is, is liberal Christianity from the turn of the 1900s repackaged. So when you get liber- if you looked at liberal Christianity in the 1920s, 1930s, 1940s, all of their doctrines, all the things they're saying, it's the same thing as progressive Christianity, just with a new package on it. Nothing new under the sun, right? Some things never change. The world's the world. The world has the same tactics that haven't changed since the devil has taken over with it. So there's that. Okay, so that's our introduction. Now we'll actually get into the teaching of Scripture, right? Because... What, is, what does the scripture say? That the, the, the scripture is God-inspired and useful for like growth and correction and, 
and all of that, and, and building our character. It's not my opinion, you know, it's the actual scripture. So I want to be very adamant that we're going to read the scripture before I do any commentary on the scripture. So this is the scripture. We're going to go through all of 1 Timothy 3 and 4, and then we'll break some of that down. You guys ready? We're going to do some cross-country skiing on this, right, Twyla? Cross-country skiing. We're going to cover a lot of ground here. Here's a trustworthy saying. Whoever aspires to be an overseer desires a noble task. Now the overseer is to be above reproach, faithful to his wife, temperate, self-control, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not given to drunkenness, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own family well and see that his children obey him, and he must do so in a manner worthy of full respect. If anyone does not know how to manage their own family, how can they take care of God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become conceited and fall under the same judgment as the devil. He must also have a good reputation with outsiders so that he will not fall into disgrace and into the devil's trap. In the same way, deacons, so we've got overseers, elders, right? Deacons are to be worthy of respect, sincere, not indulging in much wine, and not pursuing dishonest gain. They must keep hold of the deep truths of the faith with a clear conscience. They must be first tested, and then if there's nothing against them, let them serve as deacons. In the same way, women are to be worthy of respect, not malicious talkers, but temperate and trustworthy in everything. A deacon must be faithful to his wife and must be manage his children and his household well. Those who have served well gain an excellent standing and great assurance in their faith in Christ Jesus. And then Paul goes on, I hope uh, to come to you soon. I'm writing these instructions so that if I'm delayed, you will know how people ought to conduct themselves in God's household, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and foundation of the truth. Beyond all question, the mystery from which true godliness springs is great. And he spells it out. Jesus appeared in the flesh, was vindicated by the Spirit, was seen by angels, was preached among the nations, was believed on in the world, was taken up into glory. Chapter 4. The Spirit clearly says that in later times, some will abandon the faith and follow deceiving spirits and things taught by demons. Such teachings come through hypocritical liars whose consciences have been seared as with a hot iron. They forbid people to marry and order them to abstain, abstain from certain foods which God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and those who know the truth. For everything God created is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving because it is consecrated by the word of God and by prayer. Verse 6, if you point these things out to the brothers and sisters, you will be a good minister of Christ Jesus, nourished on the truths of the faith and of the good teaching that you have followed. Have nothing to do with godless myths and old wives' tales. Rather, train yourselves to be godly. For physical training is of some value, but godliness has value for all things, holding promise for both the present life and the life to come. This is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. That is why we labor and strive, because we have put our hope in the living God, who is the Savior of all people, and especially for those who believe. Command and teach these things. Don't let anyone look down on you because of your young, because you are young, but set an example for the believers in speech and conduct and love and faith and in purity. Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to preaching and to teaching. Do not neglect your gift which was given you through prophecy when the body of elders laid their hands on you. Be diligent in these matters. Give yourself wholly to them so that everyone may see your progress. Watch your life and doctrine closely. Persevere in them. Because if you do, you will save both yourself and your hearers. So, 
That's the word of the Lord. That's chapters 3 and 4. Now we're going to break some of that down. So he really spells out, like, what kind of character does an elder in the church need? And what kind of character do deacons need, right? So here, here, here's a breakdown of the character of the elders. Above reproach, right? So that means that your actions and your attitude, uh, the, the, there shouldn't be an area for people to have a bad mark against you, whether in the church or outside in the world. It says to be faithfully monogamous. Uh, you're faithful to your wife. So there's no place for adultery. There's no place for open marriages, anything like that. It's monogamy, right? Straight up monogamy. That means if you're not married, you're not going out and having sex. If you are married, it's just the spouse. No ifs, ands, or buts about it. To be temperate, right? What does temperate mean? It means being kind of even-keeled so that you're not given over to bursts of anger. Um, and also that, that you're kind of moderate in your approach to a lot of things. There's no extremities. Like some people, some Christians are, you know, like totally abstained from alcohol. And that's good and that's great because we follow our convictions. There's no prohibition on scripture about it. There is a prohibition about drunkenness. So if you're going to go have a beer, do it temperately. Be respectable about it. Be self-controlled. There's another part. Self-control. That keeps coming up. I mean, that came up a couple of times last week. It comes up in Galatians 5.22. It's a fruit of the Spirit. Somebody who lacks self-control is somebody who's not developing the fruit of the Spirit inside of them. Self-control. Being respectable, meaning conducting yourselves in a manner worthy of respect. All of your interactions. Uh, the way I, I like to view being respectable is like being honest and sincere in my interactions with people. And then also trying as much as I can to let somebody have a positive experience when they interact with me. That's a positive experience. That's a respectable thing. Being hospitable. You see somebody in need, you can help meet that need, do it. You know, what's the whole story of the Good Samaritan, right? Like, who was the Samaritan's neighbor? Or who was that, that, that victim's neighbor? There was a Samaritan that came by, took care of his wounds, put him in the inn, helped him out. Both of the religious leaders walked, looked at him, went to the other side, and just kept on going. Um, so, being hospitable. Being able to teach. An elder should be able to maneuver and work through the Word of God with accuracy, with, with clear, clarity. That's, that's a, a, a staple for elderhood, eldership. And that's why we have a rotation of preachers. Like, like a lot of our elders will be up here preaching uh, because they are able to teach, and we want them to be able to work in that category, to grow in that category. Uh, so able to teach, not given to drunkenness. Well, we just covered that. Um, not violent, but gentle. Jesus talked about turning the other cheek. Like, like the, the, being gentle is the first go-to in any interaction, whether it's uh, a confrontation or just a regular conversation. Not being an abrasive person. If you want to be an elder, you shouldn't really be abrasive. Unless, it's like, unless some sort of conflict really mandates that, which is very few and far in between. Jesus says, blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be with the... Called the sons of God, something like that. I, I, I get that all jumbled up there. <clears throat> Not be quarrelsome. There we go again. Don't be given into getting into quarrels. Not a lover of money, right? He even tells Timothy, uh, the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. So we don't do that. If we're elders, we exemplify not being a lover of money. Managing the family well. What that really means, it doesn't mean that 
that everything looks good on the outside. It means on the inside, in the day-to-day, -day, parents are engaged with their kids and they're engaged with each other. Because being engaged leads to this interconnectedness. It leads to a connected relationship. So the time you have together, spend that time together and be engaged. Uh, and that's something that I personally I've struggled with. Like sometimes I'll come home and my mind will still be on work. And it means I'm not engaged with the kids. And then I see the kids starting to act up. And it's not really that they're, they're being malicious and acting up. It's because I'm not engaged with them. And they're feeling that disengagement. And they're, they're acting out out of a need to be engaged with their daddy. So there's this need for an engagement. That's what managing the family well is. You clear expectations, right? What are the boundaries? What's expected for good behavior? And then also being engaged with them when you're with them. Very important. Having obedient slash well-behaved children. Um, that means that they know their clear expectations. They know what the consequences are. And that they, that's consistent because they find, that, they find safety in those boundaries. You know, they might push those boundaries from time to time. But when they know that mommy and daddy have clear boundaries on what's good and what's not good, there's a safety in that. It's like we build a fence around the yard and they can play... Anywhere they want in that yard, as long as they don't go outside of the fence. It's the same thing with behavior. In a manner worthy of full respect, right? So we act in respectful ways, and we teach our kids to act in respectful ways. Not be a recent convert. Um, just because somebody has a really, really big gift or a talent is not, should never be the moniker for them getting into leadership or giving a platform whatsoever. Um, I've seen that happen uh, quite a bit where somebody has a really good gift, whether it's musically, whether it's a spiritual gift, then all of a sudden they're invited on the leadership boards and things like that, but they don't have their character in line. The problem with that, uh, if, if we as a church bring in immature people, I mean, you can be serving the Lord for 30 years and still be immature. Like, if, if they're immature, but they have a good gift and we bring them into leadership because of that, What's going to happen is that the responsibility for being in leadership and the attacks that come from the enemy will destroy them because their character isn't strong enough to hold up to it. Um, and that, that's a bad mark on the leadership if we let somebody get destroyed because they're not ready to come into the position. So don't let elders be recent converts. Um, elders need to have a good reputation with outsiders. Whenever they do business, they do it with integrity. If they give their word for something, they stick to their word. All too often nowadays, even in the church, our word means very little. If I give my word, like I, I can have a, a myriad of excuses why I, I didn't hold to my word. And, oh, it's okay. And, and so there's this fine line about Christians and character. When we're interacting with the world, and even, even in business dealings within the church, that if I give my word on something and then I don't hold up to it, you know, the church is by nature, we're by nature very gracious and forgiving. But after gracious and forgiving and gracious and forgiving, there's a line where that just becomes taking advantage of somebody, right? And so that kind of falls into ungodly behavior and ungodly character. So having that good reputation, especially with outsiders, is very important. And then to not fall into dis disgrace or into the devil's trap. And so there's this very clear set of guidelines for what it is to be an elder, and there's a standard that, that Paul sets out for elders 
And we'll get into the deacons as well. At the end of the day, though, this isn't just for elders. This is what every believer should be working towards. Like, like the elder is the one who has kind of got it down. This is the goal for every believer. So we should all be looking at this list and striving to embody that. Uh, and then asking the Lord to, to empower us, to, uh, to give us the strength and the hunger and, and, and to strive for this. And I, I've, I've noticed over the years that, that when you have a really, really strong grace message like philosophy in your church, there tends to be this, this movement to kind of shun the idea of striving. And, and I kind of get that on, in some generations where they were, they were raised up that they have to kind of earn their salvation, even in the evangelical churches, right? And so like the striving keeps them from receiving God's grace. At the same time, if you've never had to put discipline toward building your character, then striving is absolutely essential. It's not about earning the salvation. It's about striving to get your life in line with the kingdom of heaven. Hard work is a godly thing. And hard work on your character, if you're going to be a Christian, is mandatory. It's not to earn your salvation. It's to grow into your faith and to grow into that maturity. So we do strive for this. We do work towards this. And this, this, just take this list right here. And we're just going to say this thing. How many are there? One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine times two. Eight, Eighteen tenants that Paul lists out right here should be the normal for every Christian. That should be the normal way we think. It should be the normal way we operate, the normal way we interact with people, the normal way we, that tempers our attitude. That should be our normal. This should not be something above and beyond, like, oh, this is like the, the golden thing that nobody could ever achieve. It's like, no, no, this, is, this should be our normal. This is, this is the kindergarten stuff. This is the elementary stuff in the faith. So that should be our normal. And uh, Paul kind of, it's kind of weird, because he gives a list for deacons, and then like, oh, this thing about women, and then back into the deacons. So I'm just going to couple that all together into to one category. The, the deacons and women, right? Same thing, worthy of respect, sincere, not indulging in much wine, not pursuing dishonest gain, keep hold of the deep truths of the faith with a clear conscience, um, have to be tested. So you really have to have a faith that's been lived out and tested. Um, being faithful to your spouse and managing your children and household well. There's a lot of repetition between that and the elders, but it's, it's right there. And then also being worthy of respect not being malicious talkers. It means whenever words come out of your mouth, you're talking kingdom of heaven. You're speaking life to people. That you're not speaking death and destruction and negativity on people. And being temperate and trustworthy in everything. That's, that's the normal Christian life. And the leaders are supposed to be exemplifying this. Like, like, like we shouldn't be a leader until that is established as our normal. That's what he's saying. So then Paul goes on to say the reason for this letter, uh, we can find in verses 15 and 16, here's the reason. You will know how people ought to conduct themselves in God's household. So, normal Christian life, right? It's easy to think God's house is the structure right here, is the four walls, is the actual building itself. That's not God's house. That's old covenant thinking, where God's house was the temple and the Holy of Holies lived inside of us, uh, lived inside of it. Now, we as believers are God's house. We are the house of God. 
Because Scripture says that we are now the temple of the living God. The Holy Spirit dwells inside of us. Where is the Holy of Holies? Right here. The Holy Spirit dwells inside of us. If we're redeemed in Christ, we hold the Holy of Holies inside of us. Now that's kind of a heavy thing, but we carry the Holy of Holies because God's presence lives inside of us. Because of that, we, the people of the church, are God's household. So when he says how people ought to conduct themselves in God's household, it's not just how you act on a Sunday morning in church. It's your day in, our day out, when we're sleeping, when we're waking up, when we're in the shower, when our kids are acting up. We are conducting ourselves in this manner. That's what we do. That's what Christians do. If we're part of the church, a.k.a. Jesus as our personal Savior, and we believe the tenets of the faith, this is what we do. This is what it means. These are the traits of a true Christian. In that sense, we could use the term Christendom. Now, they used to use that for Europe back in the, back in the day before it became secular. But Christendom is that community where Jesus Christ is the king of our lives. That's, at the end, that's what Christendom is. There's no place in Christendom for the contrary of this list. And so now we're going to look at, uh, we're going to jump down into chapter 4, because then he, so he set up this whole list. This is what Christian character looks like. This is what Christian life looks like as opposed to the world or the false teachings that creep in, like liberal Christianity. So we're going to look at this juxtaposition now, right? So we established godly character, what's expected for the normal Christian life. Now we're going to look at the converse. He says, In later times some will abandon the faith and follow deceiving spirits and things taught by demons. Such things come through hypocritical liars whose consciences have been seared as with a hot iron. A couple examples, they forbid people to marry, and they order them to abstain from certain foods. So I would posit that, that we have modern doctrines of demons that are very prevalent in the underlying philosophy. Uh, and here's the thesis, right? So you have all of these different movements. Here, my belief is here's the overarching doctrine, demonic doctrine, that's hit the spirit of the age. That humanity is a parasite on the earth. The belief that humanity is a parasite is destroying this planet. Um, basically becomes the root of a lot of movements that we see in today's modern world. If you look at the modern movements, it's as if their ends are motivated by this idea that humanity is a parasite. Anything, so what we have is a movement where anything that's associated with humanity and society thriving seems to be countered by something designed to destroy humanity. So I want to look at a couple of examples. I actually did some, a couple of Google, well, I, I don't use Google, I use another one, uh, but some web searches. Because scripture says, God created things to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and who know the truth. Everything God created is good. Nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving because it is consecrated by the word of God and prayer. Now I'm going to hit on a couple of movements that maybe you might be personally a part of. If it's a personal philosophy, I'm okay with it. When it gets to the point where we think that all of the world should be like this, 
that's where I think the doctrine of demon uh, kind of takes prevalence because there's this huge movement here. So I'll start out with the very the first very clear one: marriage is between a man and a woman. And so, you know, on our website, we've got our doctrinal statements. We tried to keep everything we could as short and sweet as possible to understand. We got through nine of those, and we had to get on this, uh, what is marriage, and what, what, what do we recognize as a church's marriage? And um, to cover the legal grounds, it's like two paragraphs long, because <laughs> it has to be in there. So we've got that in there. But Jesus was very clear, Matthew 19, 4 through 5, that God created man and woman, that they should come together um, in marriage. Now, that's contrary to the whole LGBT, you know, alphabet soup movement, right? So, uh, you know, it started out with three, and now there's like five, and there's a question mark at the end of it, I think. So, Scripture is very contrary to that. And this has been established for thousands of years, what God's clear expectations are. It's also going contrary to this new movement where there's a, a social pressure to pursue singleness as opposed to marriage. Singleness and childlessness, which are the two very things that would destroy any society because you're reducing the population. Why would you reduce the population? Because the overarching belief that the world is overpopulated. If the world is overpopulated, then therefore the world must be a parasite that's depleting the resources of Earth and it's a zero-sum game. Rubbish. I say rubbish. It's all garbage. So here are some sample headlines. Because single, like this, the social movement, right, for singleness is kind of a social pressure to forbid marriage. Uh, so here are some sample headlines. The power of being unafraid of singlehood. The joys of being single. Learning to love, not fear, being single. Three signs that your personality prefers singleness. Hmm. But what does scripture say in Genesis 1.28? Be fruitful and multiply. So now we have this whole social movement that goes absolutely contrary to the scripture. Um, in Europe, I've, I've, I mean, it's kind of made its way into America uh, now, but, but I've heard for years in Europe, um, especially amongst white Europeans, because, you know, they have this influx of uh, southern non-white Europeans into Europe, that, like in, in Germany, for example, there was a social pressure that if you had more than two kids, you were being viewed of as like being selfish and a resource hogger. So you're like socially denigrated for having more than two kids. Well, you know what happens if you just have two kids? It's just an equal playing field. Like you've had two kids to replace you and your spouse. So if you, if you really want to be fruitful and multiply, you need to have more than two kids, right? So... Just do the math, right? So there's that. Refuel phone multiply. So this idea that the world is overpopulated. Here's a little fun fact. I, I, I looked it up, kind of did the math. <clears throat> we have roughly uh, 19 billion acres of habitable land on Earth. 19 billion acres of land that can be inhabited. So that's taking out mountains. That's taking out uh, deserts. Like, like things like that. No, just, just land itself, 19 billion habitable bits of land. We have 8 billion people on the earth right now. So if we break that down, 8 billion people means that each man, woman, and child alive can have 2.4 acres of land to live on. There is no overpopulation. 
The math is just, it's right there. That means a family of four can live on about 10 acres of land and still not deplete the resources of the earth. Just saying, that's a fun little fact. Overpopulation is just a lie. So this whole idea that we're parasites, that we're draining the resources, yada, 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 at least in this area, if you only have two kids, you get 10 acres of land, and this earth's going to be just fine. What about the food preferences? Forbidding people to eat certain foods. Now, I see more of this hostility from one camp than the other, but it, it kind of crops up in both. Uh, here are some sample headlines. Because God said, you know, like, eat the plants, eat the meat, eat the animals, right? He's got a whole guideline of what's edible and what's not edible. Uh, in Leviticus, all the way back to Genesis. Here's some, some headlines of modern movements. These, these are titled the headlines. Abuse, intimidation, death threats, um, backlash from former vegans. So people who were vegan, and then they went back to a meat-eating diet, and now the whole vegan community is like, like threatening them, death threats, all kinds of stuff. Or vegan animal rights activists are sending farmers death threats. Now, it does go both ways. I mean, I do see the, the trend one way, but here's another one that goes the other way. Dairy lovers send violent death threats to a vegan activist. Is there, let me ask you, is there a place in the Christian's mind to ever send a death threat to anybody? No. So I guess in the modern, uh, the modern culture, the whole idea of that song from the, what, the 70s or 60s, live and let live, is no longer a plausible tenant. And what are we as Christians supposed to do? Maybe some of us subsist on a vegetable diet. Maybe some of us subsist on a meat diet. Maybe most of us are omnivores. We eat just about anything, right? What do we do with this? What, what's the character? Be temperate, right? Don't be contentious. Don't be an aggressor. We live. We live our lives from what we understand from the truths of Scripture and from what we can understand. And we present the love of God. That's what we do. So in my opinion, like we shouldn't really be part of this except for to bring God's love in and not be held by any legal or social pressure to do one thing or the other. Like If we find a diet that works for us, then do that diet and don't be apologetic about it. We can have our opinions, but this is not a way for Christians to act. You know what? We're just going to leave it at that. But those, that's, that's the spirit of the age. The spirit of the age it believes that like, we are parasites and we need to reduce our population so that we can better take care of Mother Earth, which has kind of like been elevated back up to goddess status in some ways. Uh, so I'm not having any of that. Like, like they're, they're, I've got my opinions. I'll just leave it to that. But we are to be agents of Christ and we live the tenets of Scripture. Be fruitful and multiply. Love people. Bring the truth of God's gospel. Live it out. Right? That's all we do. So, in conclusion, I, I kind of kept it short uh, today. In conclusion, Paul gave Timothy a clear set of guidelines for Christian activity. If you take these things from 1 Timothy 3 and you just work on that for the next six months, like 
I believe your life will be changed. I believe your family life will be changed. I believe that your social interactions will be changed. And you might even start garnering more favor at work. Because God brings blessings for those who honor him. And being respectable in the outside world is a pretty major thing about that. So those are the guidelines. If you make 1 Timothy 3 your normal, you're doing pretty good. Like, kudos, because that's elder material right there. And, and he also warned, there are going to be those that will try to deceive people into anti-God and anti-scriptural ways. It'll, it'll creep in, um, like the progressive movement. Social justice. All these people have been oppressed. God wants to free the oppressors. He does want to free the oppressors with his gospel. Not with government mandates. Not with social pressure. He wants to do it through the truth and the power of the Holy Spirit in the ways of Scripture. And then also, finally, solid godly character and commitment to the Scriptures, God's Word, is the way to eternal truth and freedom. You know what? This whole idea of a government offering reparations is never going to unshackle the spiritual chains on any people. It'll give them a chance to buy a couple of more Nike tennis shoes. Maybe get a couple to go through college. But only the power of the Holy Spirit can break the chains of spiritual and mental bondage. Only the power of the Holy Spirit. No social movement will ever do that. And so, we're going, to, in this church, hold to the teachings of Scripture, to the Word of God, and we will guard that diligently against the spirits of the age. What does that mean? That means that when I want, I'm going to go eat a steak, and when I want, I'm going to go eat asparagus. What else does that mean? That means that anybody I come across, I don't care what nationality, what race, what color, they are created in God's image and are worthy of that dignity and respect. I will also oppose any idea, this is, this is from uh, 2 Corinthians, I believe, um, any idea that opposes itself the knowledge of Christ or the power of Christ. So I will oppose any idea that is anti-Christ. I don't care if it's whether or not the uh, humanity is a parasite on the earth, or the overpopulation, or that God's word is irrelevant anymore. Like I will oppose every one of those from the pulpit because God's truth is the most supreme thing that we can look towards. And there is an objective truth, there is an objective reality that cannot be changed by opinion, cannot be changed by feelings. Fact is fact, fiction is fiction, and both need to stay in their categories. And so that'll be my commitment as one of the pastors here, is that we will never deviate from the clear teachings or the truths of Scripture, no matter what the spirit of the age says. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so Twyla, are you here to finish us up here? So Twyla's going to do our final song and then uh, ask anybody for prayer. Um, if they need prayer, then she'll uh, dismiss us at the end. What's that? At this point, uh, anybody that you trust for prayer. Because we don't have like any designated people right now. So.
Hello again, this is Pastor Todd. I pray the Lord uses my message today to strengthen your walk with God. If you are blessed by this message and would like to support the ministry of the Gathering Place financially, I encourage you to use our online giving portal at tgpchicago.org. The portal uses PayPal's secure site so none of your information is compromised. Once again, thank you for tuning in to the Gathering Place podcast. God bless you and have a great week.